This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. It's party time on the podcast because today's guest is a directing luminary, a well-respected comedy writer and producer who created the TV series Freaks and Geeks, directed the runaway hits Bridesmaids, The Heat, Spy, A Simple Favor, and Last Christmas. He is the author of several books. His latest release is Cocktail Time, The Ultimate Guide to Grown-Up Fun. Stay tuned for my conversation with sophisticated scene sorcerer and fashion-forward filmmaker, Paul Feig. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. What? Wow. Thank you. My goodness. Thank you, Pat. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor, and, and what a glorious intro that was. Thank you. Well, I know fashion is a thing for you, that you're always a suited director, which is fantastic that somebody still has a respect for the art. Thank you. I like that look. I always say I'm not fashion, I'm style, because fashion you can never keep up with. You know, I love pictures of old Hollywood and, you know, used to see Hitchcock and John Ford and everybody else, even early Kubrick in a suit and tie. And I was like, that looked cool. I like the idea that people that make movies look like that and not guys in sweatpants and a baseball cap. <laughs> right. But you did start wearing a suit and tie very, very early in your directing career. It wasn't something now that you're a little bit more great in the temple and so forth. This is <laughs> right. something that you've been doing all along. Yeah, I started it right after Freaks and Geeks, actually. I mean, when I was a kid, I always dressed in suit and tie. I mean, from when I was nine years old, I, I loved doing that. And that wasn't going into the disco era, as you and I went through. You know, you did dress up then. You didn't wear ties, but you wore, like, angel flight pants and <laughs> faux silk shirts and jackets and all that. So, yeah, so I always did dress up. It wasn't until I was gotten to a stand-up in my late 20s that I kind of was like, oh, maybe I should kind of dress more down because you get in the clubs and you were in like a I, I would wear a suit with a bolo tie back then right I remember and the sleeves rolled up too because Pat that's what we did back in the uh, in the 80s we rolled up the sleeves on our suit jackets so take me back to the first time you did stand up because that's how I saw you and we met when you were a stand up with a crew cut yeah crew cut oh yeah no that was good you know it was all in service of my opening joke uh ha ha boy am I mad at supercuts would, would destroy because I literally looked like I had like a pull cap on top of my head. It was just, I, you know, it was a buzz cut, basically. My, my thing in life is always just have a style. Have something that tells people who you are. It doesn't have to be fancy or whatever. You know, I went through a phase where all I wore were Hawaiian shirts and then bowling shirts and all that. As opposed to just kind of like throwing stuff on just so you don't get arrested. You know, I, I think there's so few chances to get to tell people who you are before they know you. And I think it's putting a lot on somebody to like dress like a slob and go like, I want them to really appreciate me for who I am. They got to get to know me. It's like, yeah, but you know, you're really asking a lot of somebody to have to make that leap. Like at least kind of present yourself the way you kind of wish they would see you. You could probably look at chapters in your life where that helped change a little bit of your identity. And, yeah. and, and it kind of lays the pipe, I guess, for how they r respond to you. In the period after Freaks and Geeks, you know, I'd been kind of a struggling actor before that. You know, and things went well. I was a regular in a bunch of shows, but still wasn't kind of where I wanted to be. And I remember Lori, my wife, and I were, were walking through the Beverly Center, and I, for some reason, I was just wearing jeans and kind of a shitty shirt or whatever. And she's like, oh, let's just run out. And so I went out, and I remember walking around, and she goes like, what's wrong with you? I said, I said, I feel unsuccessful now. <laughs> like, I'm wearing this, the clothes that I wore when I was not as successful. And it was weird how it affected me, yeah. I think it's an important part of success is to be able to know how to pull yourself up out of the doldrums. 
Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's it's really, especially in, in considering what your podcast is about, I think it's hugely important. Environment is hugely important to me, I know, and I think I would dare say most creative people are that way. It's the trappings around you. I go through periods where all I want to do is write in public, you know, and then I go through periods where I want to have my own office and not be around anybody. And I, you know, and I, I always work on a laptop. I haven't worked on a, on a desktop computer in, I don't know, 20 years, you know. So, but it, it all goes into how I'm affected. I'm really affected by light. If a place is too dark, then I get kind of depressed. But then as if I'm really on a writing role, I'll forget that the lights are off because in the daytime, and you know, so many times Lori will walk in and she's like, why are you in the dark? It's like, oh, <laughs> I was kind of in the zone. You know, so it's whatever gets you, you have to be so kind to yourself when you're being creative, you know, just because it's hard enough, you know, we're not working on a coal mine, but but you can't, it's sort of the mental coal mine you're in. Well, you're right. And because I, I don't know how many people I've talked to on this podcast, very successful, they, they're Oscar winners, they have other things, and they still consider themselves a fraud on some level, yeah. or they go have a second album syndrome where I don't think I could top my last thing. And I know you and I talked at Austin Film Festival, I moderated a conversation with you where you mm -hmm. talked about only being as good as your last project, that you know that yeah. this roller coaster. So speak a little bit to that so people understand what that means. It never gets easier. It's so funny. You kind of hit a certain point where you've had a number of things that have gone well or considered to be successful, even if they haven't gone you know, mega hit. It's still, you're not losing people money, so you are doing successful things. And I've had so many people go like, well, gosh, now you must be able, you can just do whatever you want. You must not have to worry anymore. It's like, I worry more now than I did back then because you just know the town, you know, and I'm talking about Hollywood, is waiting for you to stumble, especially as you get older. You know, I turned 60 the last year, you know, and you just can feel that thing of like, uh oh, is he about to lose it? Is he not in touch? Does he not have a commercial sensibility? And that's about, you know, talking about commercial stuff. I mean, if you're, you know, independent filmmaker or whatever, you can, you have a little more flexibility as long as you can raise, you know, raise the, the budgets for your, for your movies. But when you're in a commercial world, yeah, you're just, the, the, the fear is always there. But it drives you. I don't think if you didn't have that, you'd get squishy and kind of like, I'm going to make this movie about this that I don't think anybody cares about, but I really care about it. And you have to always run, I find, every idea through a heavy-duty filter of like, if I didn't know me, would I want to see that? Does anybody else care about this, or is this just some weird thing I'm trying to work out that I should go to therapy for instead? Uh -huh. <laughs> do, you, do you ever let the budget weigh you down? Because some of these Budgets, uh, uh, Bridesmaids, a $37 million movie to start. Yeah, yeah. Do you try to maintain a balance? Yeah, you, I mean, you can't think about the money that you're in charge of. You know, it's funny. when we I remember when we were going to shoot the first day of the pilot on Freaks and Geeks, you know, and I was an actor before then and a writer in you know, film school, but we made little films. And going to the set, and, you know, there's a million trucks and I was just all, you know, I wasn't even directing, but I, at the same time, I was still like, oh my God, I'm in charge of all these things because it's my show and what's on that truck and I got to know what's in that. You know, and then very quickly you find out, like, none of that stuff matters. That's all what the, what the, the craftspeople need when you go like, I want a shot of her face and it come around here. You know, I don't care what, what the, you know, you, you slowly kind of learn, okay, let's do a technical crane or whatever it is, but you don't have to care about that stuff. And so I, I think it's all about kind of releasing yourself from the, the, the pressures around you because you will make yourself insane. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, you know, the last, you know, I've done two movies that were like $140 million budgets, you know, both uh, uh, Ghostbusters and then my last movie, The School for Good and Evil. 
the, the irony is that you never have enough money. So, you know, so you're always, you're, you're not so much like, oh my God, we've got this pot of gold. It's always kind of like, can we get another 10 million because we can't get this and this and this. So I, it, I think it's, it's almost set up to kind of keep you from losing your mind. Yeah. Well, what's funny is that when I had a uh, few episodes of a sitcom that I created, I remember mm -hmm. some actors nervous about what people thought on the stage that they were doing and are, are they... And every person on that stage, including the boom mic operator, they're all nervous. Am I dropping the microphone yeah. into the shot? Like everybody's nervous yeah. about, am I framing this right? They're not even paying attention to you, right? I mean, the oh, director no, totally. <laughs> is paying attention to you, but everybody else is like, I don't want to screw this thing up. Yeah, well, that's why cast and crew screenings are so not fun. You always think it's going to be fun, like it's going to be a party. and Everybody's going to be laughing and having a great time. And they, they get the worst response because everybody's just staring at their work. What's wrong? Is this movie bombing? Because I've shown it in front of test audiences and it kills. They just realize people just focus on their one thing. But that's what makes them great. You wouldn't hire the people who just like, hey, whatever, man. You know, you work, when you're working with craftspeople and, 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 you know, creative people in a very in specific jobs, they are perfectionists in their own way. And if they weren't, then you would get rid of them and find somebody who was. Do you have team members that you carry from project to project? You're always desperately trying to get your core group and keep them together. And I'm lucky, like the, this movie, I'm just start start shooting tomorrow, actually was able to bring over all my favorite like department heads and, and all that. So, But it doesn't normally line up. It, usually you kind of lose one or two people just because unless you know your projects in a, in a row and they're going right after each other, you know, people just take other jobs. But yeah, when you can keep the, the people you know, it's just so nice to have that shorthand and they understand what you want and you don't have to reteach people. It's like wishing you could have the same assistant your whole life because they know you so well, but clearly they've got goals and aspirations beyond, you know, getting you coffee and, and taking care of your laundry. Yeah, but I also imagine that with your success that people are trying to scavenge your dream team whenever there's a little break in the action, they'll say, oh, I want to take that department head over here. Oh, no, totally. And what happens a lot of times, like, people will call you up, especially people you know are going in, like, hey, can, can you recommend, you know, this, you know, so-and-so, they're calling, wanting to get a recommendation. I'm like, well, yeah, but if you can, don't take them from this time to this time, because if you do, I'll kill you. Yeah, that was like when I had kids and they were young, I wouldn't dare tell anybody who our babysitter was, because yeah. then we couldn't go anywhere. Like, they'd go, oh, we're going to the party. You're going, no, our babysitter. So now one of us has to stay home. It's like hanging onto your favorite secret route in LA, you know, your driving route. Like, don't, like, the, the biggest thing, I mean, if this was years ago, but like the biggest thing that ruined everybody's lives was they put out this book called LA Shortcuts that just publicized everybody's favorite shortcuts. And so they all filled up. That's funny. <laughs> well, now you just mentioned the new project. So do you mind? I know you're in Atlanta and you said you're starting filming mm -hmm. tomorrow. Tell me uh, yeah. what it's called and maybe the premise, if you can share that. I'm going back to my R-rated action comedy route, so I'm very happy about that. Uh, it's called Grand Death Lotto. There you go. You know, it's a classy film when it's got that in the title. Uh, but it's John Cena and Aquafina and uh, Simu Liu and uh, Sean William Scott and, I mean, all kinds of cool people. And, and it's just, it's a, it's a ridiculous premise. It's a near-future California where a lottery has been established in which if you win... Everybody has until sundown to kill you and take your prize. Oh, so. oh, and then they get the prize. I see. Yeah, if they kill you, then they win the prize in the game. Okay, over. so so the name drawn becomes the target. Yes, exactly. So you win, but do you win really? <laughs> and then you have to keep yourself alive. And then there's these these like protection agencies that, for a fee, will come in and protect you. And so John Cena runs his own kind of independent one, and then Simu Leo has a very big corporate one in it. <laughs> 
a grand death lotto is a great little twist and familiar sound, but also exactly. a kooky premise. Yeah. You got to cut through the noise these days with what we, you know, I'm, my company's always like, what's an undeniable idea? What is undeniable? What if you hear it and go like, that sounds interesting, or at least makes you go, what's that? You know, and uh, that ironically, this, they kept sending me this, this script at the time it was called Grand Theft Lotto. And I just kept saying like, I'm not going to read this. It sounds like the stupidest thing ever. And it was really my producing partner, Laura Fisher, one day called me up. She's like, you should read this. It's actually insanely funny and the, I got 40 pages in I was like I've got to do this movie like this is the Jackie Chan movie I've been wanting to make my whole career so you just have to be open to stuff I feel like this could be really popular but you know you just don't know but again you just have to follow your gut run it through all your filters of like would people want to see this is this does it check all these boxes and when it does go like you know what just commit and go for it like it's the greatest thing in the world but I love the word undeniable that you said, because in some way for the amount of projects that you have come across your desk or people pitch you or try to stick out, you know, underneath your nose at mm. any point, you have to be willing to invest a better part of a couple of years on it, right? When you're making a, a movie, it is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's never a second when you're not thinking about it, dreaming about it. I mean, you know, it overtakes your life. You know, that's why you get a nice paycheck a, a lot of times for doing it because they are literally buying you for that um, year, two years that it takes to do this thing. You know, over the course of my career, even when I was really struggling, before even Freaks and Geeks, I directed this movie called Life Sold Separately, which I paid for out of pocket. And I was in it and all this stuff cost $35,000. And, you know, I had an agent that really liked it and so they sent me this script that they were trying to get a director for and I read it and I was just like I just don't relate to this script and I remember one of the other agents going like he's turning down a directing job of a feature because he doesn't get it and it's like yeah dude I am because I won't do a good job if I'm like I don't know how, what this movie is yeah you know? you're a storyteller at the core you have the story has to speak to you in a way you can interpret it right because that's yeah. the only, I think, way to put a point of view out there. Well, you have to see yourself in the project in some way. It doesn't have to be about you, but you have to find that thing in there that you go like, ah, that's a theme I have. That's, you know, that's why directors, there is a running theme in every director's career, whether they want to admit it or not, whether critics want to admit it or not. You know, for me, it's always the outsider, the underdog, like, you know, the person trying to figure out their place in life. And it can go in a million different directions. You know, the movie I just made before this, The School for Good and Evil, is about, you know, two two girls in a in like a fairy tale town who get sent to a place where they train fairy tale heroes and villains. I just really related to those two young women characters because one was desperately feeling like she needed to get out of where she was, which is how I felt when I was, you know, in Michigan and wanted to get in the showbiz. And the other one was trying to protect, you know, her friend. You know, so you, you find yourself in these things. And once you can relate to that, then you're just, you're in, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, which is what I liked about the movie that you wrote and directed, Spy, was Melissa McCarthy now is sort of the wannabe agent that gets no attention at all. And a situation comes up where she essentially volunteers to go in there and Jason Statham, who couldn't be uh, better cast in terms of the intensity. <laughs> well, the two of them, the juxtaposition of that showed, you know, her as the underdog that wanted to be discovered and him as the veteran who wanted nothing to do with her. It was yeah. great chemistry, but it just made me laugh. Thanks. Now, when you first came up with that, that seems like a very much a... Paul Feig inspired idea. Did it come to you much earlier in life and you finally got around to writing it? Or was that a project that you picked up uh, in some in-between moment? 
Well, no, I mean, I'd always wanted to direct a James Bond movie. That was always my thing, but, you know, but I didn't have this story. It was really, the genesis of was of it was going from Bridesmaids to The Heat, where on Bridesmaids, you know, I had Judd Apatow, who's, you know, my old friend, and we did Freaks and Geeks together, you know, so he was kind of protecting me on that one. And, and you know, from whatever, from the studio, all the, all the stuff that goes on in showbiz. So I could just do my thing. And then going into The Heat, I didn't have that. And, this, and you had the imposter thing kind of came up really hardcore of like, what am I doing here? I don't know what I'm doing. I think I can do it, but I, I don't think I can. And so when I came up with the idea for Spy, because you know, basically Skyfall had done really well, and I was like, oh man, like the, the old longing to do a James Bond movie came up, and I was like, well, no one's ever going to let me do it. Wait, I work with all these funny women. Let me do a female James Bond, but the story has to be, she's actually really good at her job, but she doesn't know it, and it takes this getting kicked out of the nest to do it. So that's kind of how I, you know, so it's a really, it's weirdly one of my most personal movies, even though, you know, it's, it's nuts. Yeah, no, but I loved it. And also, if I recall, I might be wrong about this. Was there a mention of pink eye in that movie? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> There's a big pink eye joke in that. So I remember when I was watching it laughing and going, oh, he found one of the great uh, diseases that has not gotten enough exposure in cinematic terms. <laughs> well, it's such a great squirrely one because it's, it's all based on if your hands are filthy from wiping your ass. You know, So it's not a noble disease, let's say. No, no it's not at all, but it is one of those things kind of like lice where right. a kid comes home with it and then the parents get it and everyone's like, don't put on people's ball caps. Like, it's a disaster, but it's one of those ones that could it could hit your family regardless yes. of your you know economic status. You have both sympathy, sympathy and utter dis- disdain for the person that got it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let me take us back to a, a place where kind of we had met around this time when we were stand-ups, but the, the ranch which I love talking about the ranch. I think the only reason I bring it up was when we were talking at Austin Film Festival, we started talking about some of the characters at the ranch and you have cast some of those folks in your movies along the way. But the the ranch was a ranch style house in the Valley that comics and actors and show business wannabes all showed up Mm -hmm. at. And it definitely was not lofty. Not lofty, (laughs) no. (laughs) Filthy. The ranch that makes it sound like it's on Montana and there's cattle. I know. Oh, my God. This place was condemned. (laughs) The the bathroom was like a nightmare. The the night I want to see if you recall was there was a poker game, which there was frequently poker games and frequent coffee drinking and cigarette smoking. But it was the night that a young guy named Tim, and he was kind of new to the ranch, and it was the clown poker night. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I certainly do. Yeah. I remember that very well. <laughs> it was a completely unplanned moment. And I, it stands out in my mind as a comic moment where there was a mind meld. And I feel yeah. like Dave Higgins, who has had much success on television as character actor and so forth, yeah. just drifted out to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and somebody's makeup kit had an, uh, a toolbox that was full of makeup so when he came back from the bathroom he had just put on clown face some sad clown face and and came back and no one said anything and he sat back at the poker table and we continued to play exactly. and then it kind of spread from there i i, I have a mem- memory of mark fight being dressed up well that's the thing it was everyone sort of played the straight face stonewall which was funny to all of us and it was never mm. planned and then the next thing you know, Steve went to the bathroom and 
it kind of became mm-hmm. this sort of trail where each of us left and came back. You know, I mean, but that's what was so great about the ranch. And actually, my this cocktail book I just wrote, I have a little section where I kind of talk about the ranch and just say, like, I hope that every creative person, especially a funny person, finds that group that you can just hang with and just you kind of you find your comedy voice through anarchy and camaraderie and experimentation, all in the name of just, hey, we're hanging out and having fun. We were all stand-ups, so we would do our stand-up act until, you know, 11, midnight or whatever, and then we'd all show up at the ranch, and the whole goal was to try to get the sunrise. And and we would just play poker all night or watch stupid videos, right? You know, all pre-internet, yeah. so that was, you know, somebody would sneak in, like, you know, those, the famous videotapes of, like, The Farting Preacher and all that stuff, which <laughs> right. is early YouTube, <laughs> pioneer days YouTube. But it, it was, you know, it built such a safe haven where you could, like, try stuff out, you know, and, you know, trying to take on the Higgins boys and all those, you know, people and Joel Madison, all those trying to be funnier than them was always a losing proposition because they would just, they were the funniest guys in the room. Well, but there were always surprises, and that's what I also appreciated. First of all, the spirit of some competition, which was what kooky thing, yeah. but some of them became uh, what I would call a routine. Then you would look mm-hmm. forward to a reprise of that. And and I think about yeah. Mark Fight and Toby Huss chasing each other around the house, one with yeah. a big knife, and <laughs> oh, they would that. run around the kitchen island, around the kitchen, through the dining room, and come around. That would be like a a three-round pass, and on the (laughs) last pass, Toby would set down the knife and pick up a piece of tin foil shaped exactly like the knife, and then he would trip on the carpet and plunge the foil into Mark's back, who would go, like, it was funny until it was death. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you can't get enough of that. Like, any given night, I could take that, you know, on the half hour, I'd take that. It was so hilarious. Jake Hogan used to have a bit that he would do where he would be, pretend to have a heart attack. And it was, I mean, talk about so dark, but like they'd be running around. He'd be like, would run, run crazy. And then he'd pretend to have a heart attack and everyone would pretend to be concerned. And it was just like, you're like, oh my God. Like we would just do like the darkest weird stuff. But again, it was kind of in this safe place where we're like, we're all comedy guys, you know, and, and, and women. And like, we just know this is the place where we can try stuff out and see going like, okay, well that's too much, but it makes us laugh. But you, you want that kind of anarchy, especially when you're in your 20s and trying to discover who you are for comedy. You've got so many, I would say, plateaus in your career where you did stand up and you did well at it, you know, considering what the stand up game is. Yeah. Uh, and then I noticed at the time when we would be at the ranch, I would go, oh, wait, Paul's acting in these things. Like he's on Sabrina or he's got a role in Heavyweights or Ski Patrol or something. Mm. And that felt, yeah, that exactly. felt like. Oh, somebody's breaking out to do something else. And from your acting career to your writing your own scripts to directing to essentially you're always now still doing a little of all of those things, but also producing other people's projects as well. So it feels like there's always a brass ring to grab, you know, a challenge uh, around the corner. Yeah, no, very much so. You know, we were all very, uh, you know, ambitious, and, and I was definitely, you know, insanely ambitious and was always chasing the golden ring. It's validation, you know, you're just kind of looking for that validation. I remember we would have times, you know, every once in a while, comedy people can be very snobby sometimes too, and I remember sometimes we would all sit around and like watch Saturday Night Live or whatever and just trash it. And I remember one night going like, I don't think we should be trashing this stuff because they're doing it. And, and how ironic now that, you know, Steve Higgins is, you know, run, basically runs 
SNL under Lorne. I, I find this throughout my life. There's some people who don't want to go that next level of saying, I'm going to join the game. A lot of people go like, I'm not going to sell out. And it's like, well, that's awesome if you can kind of make a living doing that. And I don't feel like we've sold out. But at the same time, you do sell out in a way where you go, I have to play by their rules and I got to play the politics and I have to compromise where I don't think it's going to hurt what I want to do, but I do have to find a place of compromise. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. You're really onto something, though, which is that if you want to be a Dalai Lama and sit on top of a mountain and wait for people to come to you and, you know, yeah. look down your nose and everything, you can do that. Mm-hmm. But if you want people to join your religion, let's say, then yeah. then you have to find a standing structure that you can preach within. And now I don't know why this analogy has gone religious, but... <laughs> But the point is, <laughs> well, find your own point of view that you believe enough in that the building and the structure are n- not as significant, but you are able to put an invitation out to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like realize what you want to do, <clears throat> what sandbox you want to play in, and what you want the goal to be. When I do my movies, especially my hard comedies, we do a ton of test screenings, uh, you know, starting early in the, in the editing process, even before I have to turn in my director's cut, just to go like, let's put up in front of an audience of people who don't know me. You know, we get them off the street. They get them from in front of movie theaters. They have no stake in the game. And they'll sit there and we record their laughs and we go like that. We, we thought that was going to be really funny. It didn't get a laugh, but that stupid joke got a giant laugh. But we change stuff based on that. And I've had over the years people like, wow, you're giving a lot of you know power to a bunch of people you don't know and they might be stupid or blah, blah, blah. I go like, you know what, if it's 400 people, even 250 people, I don't know. They're going to be, it's like how they can call an election after, you know, 1% of the precincts have reported. You just go like, it just breaks down that way. So I have no problem with that because I took on a job going like, I'm going to make a movie for a studio where they're going to put me in charge of a shitload of money to make this thing so I can't suddenly go like, well, f- who cares what the audience thinks? I want this. It's like, no, that's your job. And you, if you want to do that, sure, but you're not going to make another studio film. And I'd rather make a studio film. I, you know, when I made the, my this movie called I Am David, which was kind of my first official feature film, and, you know, it, it was so much work. And, well, honestly, I mean, I'll even go back to Life Sold Separately, the one I paid for out of pocket. It, it was so much work, took so much time. And at the end, I had this finished product. I couldn't get out anywhere. There's no marketing whatsoever. It's pre-internet. You couldn't even put it out online. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do all that work, and I'd been told for so long, like, oh, if you do a studio film, the studios are all over you and the politics and they'll kill you and they'll, you'll kill your vision, blah, blah, blah. I remember going like, well... Fuck it. I'm gonna, if I'm going to put all that time in, I at least want to go like, I'm going to get marketed at the end of the day and I'm going to get distribution. So I'll put up whatever you know shit I need to. And the irony is you don't put up that with that much shit as long as you go into it knowing you're going to put up with a lot of shit. Right, right. <laughs> if, that makes, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Well, I think it kind of does. You wear your shit protecting poncho and you give them <laughs> exactly. everything you can where you can enhance what it is. The best thing is you get a few successes. Now, that doesn't mean they give you carte blanche, but you always are still the guy that directed Bridesmaids. Right. You have a track record now. <laughs> exactly. and, and subsequently, your relationship and collaboration with Melissa McCarthy, you're stepping into it with somebody who is marketable. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, yeah. there's going to be some previews and some because they want to protect their money. Yeah, totally. This takes us back to the days of playing poker at the ranch. You want to stack the deck. If you can 
be drawing into a full boat as opposed to going in there with five random cards. That's what you're yeah. saying in terms of protecting yourself. Oh, totally. Play into your strengths. You know, when I was trying to be a writer, you know, the first half of my life, you know, I always wanted to write. But I remember it had some weird thing in my head that was, if you're a writer, you have to make stuff up completely from nothing. I remember, like, finding out that, you know, Norman Rockwell would pose people and paint them. I was like, well, that's not real painting. He's just, like, <laughs> copying things down. So I'd write all this stuff that kind of had no bearing on anybody, like weird sci-fi things and all this that kind of was just all about, you know, the situation and the stuff in it and the cool stuff or whatever, but it had nothing to do with characters or, or emotion or anything like that. It wasn't really until I finally wrote Freaks and Geeks, which is the most personal thing to that point I'd written, that that took off. And I went, like, oh, I get it. If you write from your experience and things that you know, that has value because your experience is different from anybody else in the world. And if you can portray it in a way that people then relate to, then that's what people latch on to. So it was a real eye-opener of like, no, the more personal, the better. You just don't have to tell it in the way that it exactly happened. I mean, obviously, Freaks and Geeks was, was that context, but, you know, Spy is my most personal story told through a big spy epic, you know, which clearly I'm not a spy, you know. So it just depends how you, what, what context you put it in. You might be fascinated to know this is a Norman Rockwell thing because I did go see his museum. The town is like his paintings and the people were the people he posed. So there's a little girl who's now 65 who is the girl right. from that picture and her face still looks the same. Like there's something That's so cool. surreal yeah. about the whole experience of it. But, it's yeah, but that's why it stands the test of time, you know? Right. I mean, it, 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 it meant something, and it was based on something. Well, like, if you go to Mason City, Iowa, where Meredith Wilson created the Music Man, there's the library, there's the footbrooch, there's the gazebo, and you go, oh, oh, this isn't yeah. some made-up crazy musical. This is just Mason City with the marching band crossing through it. Yeah, totally. But but audiences don't know that. And so they're like, wow, this is so inventive. And oh my God, you know, that that's why, you know, like a first film, a first book, a first anything is always not, it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but it is, holy smokes, where did this new voice come from? And it's like, well, that new voice has just been very good at, at portraying their individual experience. And that's why it's so hard to kind of follow up a lot. Well, that's what I loved about the movie Fargo is yeah. that's Fargo. If you lived anywhere near mm -hmm. it, you would hear those people. They would talk like that. And the people <laughs> in L.A., I think they thought it was like the craziest made-up accent and all of that. <laughs> right. And when you tell stories about riding in the back of the country square wagon going to Dairy Queen, in L.A., they think it's a made-up thing. And it's like, that's what we did every weekend. Oh, totally, totally. Going to Farrell's. Like, what? There was a place where they ran around with ice cream? Like, yes. We went, every birthday I went there. <laughs> it doesn't not exist just because you don't do it in your world. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I feel like now we're kind of getting away from that golden era of the coasts having no idea what's going on in the middle of the country, you know, because it was just so insulated. But now I think because of the Internet and just, you know, everything else, the, the, at least we're realizing that other people had experiences different than, you know, New York and L.A. Well, I think that's globally true, right? Ever since we watched a Scud missile go down a chimney, we're like, oh, what? Yeah, yeah. This is happening yeah. right now. There's a world out there. <laughs> well, one of the things I'm, I'm curious to know about uh, is the art of the alternate line. When things like DVDs come out, there used to be an extra track and you would show how you went about that. So I just wanted to discuss it with you so you could tell the audience. Uh, the scene I'm thinking of, of course, was Melissa McCarthy sitting in the sink in Bridesmaids. And 
Right. In the, you can't really <laughs> find this. St- I mean, I guess on YouTube it's probably out there, but but it used to be that you could go there and you could see this hilarious series of rapid lines where yeah. things were being tried. So just tell them when you get to a place like that, how you go about that. Yeah, well, you know, you, you work really hard to make sure you got the best script possible with the funniest jokes in it, and you know, but 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 script is really a blueprint for yes, for the comedy, but but mostly for the emotional structure arc blueprint of the movie because that's what people are going to latch on to. The jokes, even though you're trying to put the best ones in, you're like, I don't know, there there could be other funny jokes here. So you have these lists of like alternate jokes. And then you also then I you know, like to hire people who are good at improv who can come up with stuff on their on their own in, in the moment. And then in the moment for me, then I'm going like, oh wait, oh try this because you know I come from an improv background. And so it's it becomes this just like try this, try that, try this, throwing lines at people, doing the scene again. You know, it's never anarchy. You know, a lot of my haters, especially for Ghostbusters, like oh, just ad lib the whole thing. It's like no, you don't ad lib a whole movie. Basically, what you do is you've got the scene structure, but then like this joke, let's change this, let's change that. Maybe let's change the the route of these next three lines to kind of have a different kind of route to get from point A to point B. The, the goal is when you go into a test screening, and you, you you put it up there, and the jokes don't land, or a joke doesn't land, you go like, okay, let's go back to the editing room, let's put in joke B, joke C, what are the ones we think are the funniest? Yeah, so that, so that's why it's really fun. I miss DVD extras so much, you know, because that's where, that was the fun dumping ground. You didn't feel so bad if you'd take something out that you knew was really funny, but an audience didn't respond to, because you go, oh, it'll be in the extras so people can watch that. You know, I think we're still trying to figure out in streaming, like, how do we put those out? Because my favorite of all time, and I think you can find it on, on YouTube, is from Spy, all the alternate lines we had for Jason Statham and how he delivered them with such dramatic gusto. And there's some of the dumbest jokes you've ever heard in your life. And it's just him laughing as he's trying to do them. Never go into a comedy and shoot just the script you have because you will be very sad when you get in front of a test audience. And as you just said... You're shooting them at the time that you're in the location and you have the actors. You're not finding out from the screening and then having to go back somewhere and spend all that money. So you're giving yourself options. You've got the sampler platter of ideas there and you put in the one you think is your A-lister. Yeah. Well, also you're writing in a vacuum, you know, when you're, when you're writing and putting all that stuff together, you're not in the environment, you're not with the people, their voices aren't coming out, the two different people who are you cast aren't interacting, you're not seeing how their faces play off each other and how their reactions are to each other. So that's when it be, so if you then go like, you just say it the way I wrote it, then you're cutting off this huge input of creative people and of in the moment stuff. And, you know, that's why I always cross shoot as much as I can, which means, you know, just like on Zoom, I'm shooting you and shooting me at the exact same time so that they can kind of surprise each other. You know, I mean, the great example of that is that first scene in Bridesmaids with Kristen and Maya in the bakery, just making each other laugh. That was like five or six hours of just doing the scene over and over and go, try this, try that, try that, make her laugh with this or surprise her with this or act like a penis or, you know. And then Kristen suddenly had jam on her teeth, which she surprised all of us with, and then Maya answered it back. But that all makes you feel like you're so in the moment and it's like lightning in a bottle and it's not Neil Simon, which is all that's really funny but it's all that's all very written and clever and I think audiences today want authenticity and feeling like they're a fly in the wall they're there in the moment they're hanging with their funniest coolest friends yeah and you know what when you do start to get a camaraderie and a troop together they know especially now that we're not wasting film right we're shooting digitally yeah. and so forth 
they can do something to crack the crew up and then it could stay in the movie. Oh, very much so. Very much so. You know, and the big thing is also like the funniest stuff in our mo- my movies usually comes like towards the end of like a 30 minute run where the crew is just like hates you. They're like, why are they still going? They're all, you know, we're all laughing. Thing is hilarious. They're, and I always have to laugh. I always end uh, takes with everybody consoling the boom operator <laughs> because they've been standing there with a pole over their head for like 30 minutes. And I'm just like, do this joke, try this, try this. It's funny, like people don't understand that comedy is so constructed in the editing room and you're just getting pieces and you're just feeding the editing room, you're feeding the machine. And so that's why you just have to head down, don't try to play to the people around you and just go, I need these moments, I got these moments. It's so hard sometimes having like inexperienced producers or studio executives on set because they'll watch a take as if they're watching the movie. They go like, you know what? That take, all I needed was that one moment, that one line. I got it. All the other stuff, I'm going to cut out. Yeah, so the line is important, but so is the reaction. So is the clock on the wall to say the time. Yeah. They don't see that coming together the same way a storyboard would. It's funny when people want to, you know, just like friends or family or whatever, want to visit the set. I'm always like, okay, but you're not going to have a good time. Oh no, I can't wait. I think everybody thinks a movie is like a play. Like they're going to show up and like, oh, we're going to watch this scene from a movie. And that within half an hour, without fail, they're like, this is really boring. It's like, yes, it's insanely boring because we are literally creating pieces for the editing room. That's all that matters. Actors who understand that are, I think, much happier people than the actors who don't and kind of make themselves crazy. Look, obviously, you want them being at their highest performance level ever, but I love actors who don't mind if I go like, try this. Can I stop you and just like, I'll throw things in there. Okay, we got it. You know, it, you are feeding pieces into a machine. You are not on the stage, you know. Also the day that they are in the trailer all day long, waiting for their little oh, moment. And, and look, every little character moment, everything has value in the storytelling. But sometimes you'll have a person in the trailer for seven hours who's going out mm-hmm. of their minds. And then you bring them in and you <laughs> just go, we're, we're shooting oh, now. Totally. And they're like, whoa. I need to get into it. Well, that was my acting career, you know, because I was always just, you know, sort of the side character. And that would, I mean, it would happen so often. That's why I have such sympathy for when I, you know, like I'm always like, don't call that person in until we know we're going to need them in like an hour or something. Because people, people are like, well, they're, they're paid to wait, you know, and I, I get that. You, actors are paid to wait. But at the same time, nobody who's not an actor doesn't understand that feeling of like, I've got to be ready for action at a moment's notice. And then sitting in a trailer for 12 hours, and by the time you you go like, well, they're not going to get to me. And they're like, okay, get in here. And I've had, I used to have that where you go like, we got two takes at this. It's like, oh, fuck. And I got like a big speech or something. It's like no pressure whatsoever. Acting is a tough job. You're also exhausted from 10 hours of practicing those two lines. Oh, no, totally. The poor day players, because they're also coming in like that's their moment. And I've always, you know, my biggest direction with so many day players who are great people and really talented, they're just, they have that thing. They're so amped up for it. It's like, throw it away, do less, do less, do less, because they just kind of want to take that moment. And and God bless them, I I get it. But, you know, then you get this big, giant, giant performance. You're doing all these action films and these live action, but I know that you did the animated Peanuts movie. So how is that directing something like that that takes a kind of a different process? How does that work for you when you come off of a live action, you can throw stuff? 
Well, that was interesting. Fortunately, I wasn't directing that. I, I was producing it. But I always joke, I made two and a half movies in the time it took to make the Peanuts movie. Because we would just fly up to Santa Rosa every week to work on the scripts. And what's cool and interesting about the process of animation and why I couldn't do it for a living is it's constantly being made. It's almost like you're shooting a movie for two and a half years, you know, because they start the animation, they try it out, put together a movie that has some animation and some storyboards and you're screening it for people, you know, then you, but you could always go back in and change stuff versus when we shoot a movie, even if you have to go and do reshoots, that's a huge deal and it costs a fortune and it's a big thing to get all the actors back. And then you really have to, when you're making a movie, you like, you gotta get everything while you're shooting. In an animation, you can almost get a little complacent of like, well, we'll fix that, we'll figure that out, we'll figure that out. Uh, so you really got to have it together when you're going into production. But you know, it's really fun to do animated stuff, you know, and it's, it's you get this beautiful thing at the yeah. end of the day. Now, you're an author of a number of books. I know early on I read your books, Kick Me and Superstud, but now you have this book, Cocktail Time. It's 125 custom cocktails that you've put together. Was this a product of your Facebook cocktail making over COVID or had like what melded into what in that situation? Yeah. I mean, I'd always been into cocktails and collected cocktail books, but I never, I was like, I would really want to teach myself mixology and <clears throat> never had the time. So I would make like a great Negroni and, and a great martini and all that. But it was when the pa pandemic started and, you know, we were all trapped in our houses right at the beginning. I was like, oh, I'm going to do something to kind of help people and thought, well, let's just, I'll do like at five o'clock every day, I'll live stream making a cocktail and we'll raise money for first responders and charities and all that. And you just kind of try to have fun. So I felt like we needed routine then. And I thought if I can just do something every single day for a hundred days in a row, even on the weekends, and I'll put on a suit and tie, we'll just have fun. I just wanted to do that. And so, you know, it went really well. We got a lot of people watched and kind of start, came to kind of rely on it. But, you know, during it, people would go like, oh, can you put out a book of like just the recipes? And so I just started writing them down and then started going, like, well, maybe I can make this into a book. And it, from there, it's like how to stock your bar, how to throw a cocktail party, because coming out of the pandemic, you go like, well, people are going to kind of want you know do cocktail parties again. And then I always know from having done other books, they always go like, well, what are the personal stories? So that I'm like, okay, I'm going to write a dumb personal story for every drink in the book. And it just kind of ballooned from there. But I, I'm really proud of it. That's one of my prouder things I've done is this, this kind of goofy cocktail book. It's a good primer for if you want to get into cocktails. Really, it is the spirit of who you are, because you are uh, in some way a party host and what you did on Facebook, again, while it was routine in some ways, you kept it light. There was a, there was a dance sequence. There was something philanthropic in terms of uh, raising some money. And you did it from home on your, like you were your own guy starting the music. And so me and my, my phone, <laughs> right. But people could relate to that in the moment in time in history yeah. of trying to find something to do, right? We couldn't gather. Yeah. And so I think you called it your Drunk Funkle Studios. Yep, from the Drunk Funkle Studios, <laughs> exactly. But you were making merry and you were creating these craft cocktails, but you still had the respect to have your dandy dress wear on. Yeah, exactly. Just try to get people not to be all day in the, you know, the clothes they slept in. Yeah, it was almost like an Ernie Kovacs kind of <laughs> character. Mishaps would happen and you just worked your way through them. Well, that was the fun for me is I like stuff that's really rough. 
in my job, you can't have that. Everything's got to be super polished, and you know the movies, everything right. sound great, look great, blah 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 blah. I relate more to Jack White, you know, than uh, than The Edge, you know, because Jack right. White's just about kind of you know sloppy guitar, but it sounds great and all this, and it's not processed, and you know, you, you know, you see that one movie, there will be noise or whatever. He makes a guitar out of like a you know a two by four and a piece of wire or whatever. And like I I like that for certain things, and, and it's funny, like even when we were doing the show, like one time I remember thinking like oh the lighting's bad and this like towards the end of the run and so I bought like a ring light and people could see to my glasses and people got really upset they were like <laughs> you shouldn't have a ring light we like it when it looks really crappy it's like okay cool I'm I, I, I did too but I didn't think everybody else I thought everybody else was uh, horrified by it I like the mishaps I like when yeah. uh you're, you're ad-libbing you're doing a one-man conga line but also some <laughs> of the music Instagram sort of shut you down and instead oh, of giving up you just sort of talked your way through it you have to restart the show <laughs> exactly yeah the spirit of all creation is overcoming obstacles trying to create something that you're enjoying and not beating yourself up about i think taking it back to what you said much earlier get having some grace for yourself to mm -hmm. have the spirit of fun yeah, set everything up so that everything's there and then be willing to let it all be loose and don't be a control freak. I, I find the biggest problem, especially with like writer-directors, is they become very control freaky about their words. If you're hiring talented performers, don't cut them off by saying like, just say what I wrote. Let them do whatever they want. You don't have to use it. You can throw it all out in the editing room, but let them feel like they're part of it. And I guarantee they're gonna do stuff you're like, that's way better than what I came up with. And that's funnier, it's more in the moment. The phrase I say all the time, have the confidence to have no confidence, which is, you know, go into it going like, I know I can do this and we got it all set. And they get on, they, when you get on the set, go like, yeah, I think that's the funniest the one, but I don't know, maybe it's not. Like, let's do your thing because I can't tell you for sure that's gonna kill because I've had so many times in front of a test audience, here comes that joke, get ready, it's gonna destroy the room and like crickets, you know, <laughs> fuck, I guess I don't know anything. It is a lottery. I mean, it's a death lottery sometimes. <laughs> that's for sure. Nice way to bring it back around, Pat. Yes, well, I, let me bring it back around to the beginning of your career when you were a tour guide at Universal Studios in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I remember many of the things on that lot were Jaws and things like that. But if you were to be that tour guide today and had to show some specific scenery or something from a monster Paul Feig movie now, what <laughs> would that be? What location would that be for you? Oh, gosh, wow. Um, weirdly, I mean, if I could, uh, I, I would... Uh, like it would have saved the sets from the movie I did called The School for Good and Evil, which is on Netflix right now. Um, but th those are the biggest sets I ever got to make. And these were, they, they were full size. I mean, you watch it, sometimes you'll think, oh, that's all green screen and they extended it with, with computers. No, we actually built these things. They were enormous sets and they were gorgeous. So uh, yeah, I would, I would kind of like this. I would start the uh, School for Good and Evil ride. <laughs> Right. Oh, the ride, right, with 3D glasses and the works, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, do you have any advice for a newcomer director on how to give a, a, a an effective note to keep an actor from feeling like it's, that's a crisis or that they've done something wrong? Like, how do you get that range you're looking for? Yeah. Well, be supportive. Nothing's ever wrong. You know, I mean, I, I, when I was an actor, I, you know, sometimes I'd do something like, what are you doing? You know, some director like, what are you doing? That's wrong. Or even like an ad lib, like, stop, you know, and you would, what you, when you do that, you, you basically shrink their confidence, you know? And, and so for me, it's always just like, 
I don't even like to rehearse. So I actually kind of set it up in a way where they can't really fail because they go, Let, let's just go, you know, and they'll do their first take. And a lot of times I'm like, okay, that's way far off from what I wanted, but I'm not going to say that. I go, okay, cool. Now let, try this, you know, and I, and I kind of incrementally try to move them towards what I want because in doing that, then I've got all these stages uh, and levels of that performance, which then I can, you know, when I, when you're in the editing room and it's all about levels and you're kind of like, okay, are we, we need more energy here. Let's have less energy, all that. I've got the full range of what they thought was going to be good, what I thought was going to be good, and then everything in between. And I can tell you, almost 90% of the time, the thing I thought I wanted is not the thing I end up using. It's usually somewhere in the middle. And a lot of times it's their first instinct, you know, but you've just got something in your head. So so just, yeah, always be supportive and kind of like, you know, my, I always go like, cool, we got that. That's awesome. Let's try this. You know, uh, what, what would happen if you did this? You know, and as long as they're open to it and don't stonewall you, which... You know, most won't. I mean, once or twice in my career, especially in TV directing, when somebody's like, no, this is how I'm doing it. It's like, okay, well, screw me. I, I could have made you a little bit better, but all right, go ahead. Well, I'm grateful that you took the time today, invested the time. I know that your new project is tomorrow. What did you choose as a first scene that sets everybody into good confidence? That's a very interesting moment. Since tomorrow you have to set up something, are you going for something incidental or... A big action thing or what? Well, I, I try to, you always try to set it up with something that is impressive for the studio that's going to watch the, the dailies, but not so big that you kind of go in with, you know, before everybody's kind of prepared. But the irony is in today's world, what we had set up for that, one of the actors got COVID. And so we had to switch the whole schedule around. So, but ironically, what it turns out is we're actually the first thing we're shooting tomorrow is the very opening of the movie, like the first thing you see in the movie. So, which never works out that way. So I actually am kind of excited. Like we're actually going in chronological order. So, uh, so maybe the COVID gods smiled on us. Exactly. So the new book is Cocktail Time, but yes. also I want to mention that you have a you've designed a signature London Dry Gin. Yes, Artingstall's Brilliant London Dry Gin. That's mine exactly. Yeah, so <laughs> they can find out more about that by go to artingstallsgin.com. Yep. And certainly any way they want to f follow up on you or stalk you, it's at Paul Feig. <laughs> on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't do I don't really go on Facebook anymore, but uh but you always get me through IG or Twitter. Just be nice on Twitter because everybody's so mean on Twitter. Thank you so much for sharing with us your insights on direction and the inspiration to others. I appreciate it, Paul. My pleasure, Pat. You are one of my favorite people and it's always great to see you. Could you say that a little louder for my mom? Uh you are one of my favorite most talented people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping.